Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a pretty big deal. You know what, Hannah? You've always been a big deal to me, but tell me more. Well, this one time I was yelling at a man in public and then a podcast listener recognized me from yelling at a man. So I'm pretty sure that makes me a celebrity. Oh, it absolutely does. I love this. But don't even (laughs) worry. I'm trying to stay humble. So I'm still willing to join you in the sorting chat. (laughs) Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, you're very welcome. You should feel honored, though. So, Hannah, can I share with you something that I've been thinking a lot about? You know this is going to be exciting because I've been thinking about it while I've been putting together my readings for teaching this semester. It's going to be great. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So... One of my classes this semester is called Reading Class and Ideology, which you yourself have taught in the past. I have. You know what? It's still my favorite course I've ever taught. Well, I'm very excited about this class. And I've been doing a lot of reading about ideology for the class. And I came across this article by Susan Griffin. The article is called The Way of All Ideology, which I love. Uh, A very big claim. It's bold. It's bold. It's the one article you have to read. And in the article, Griffin states, quote, when a movement for liberation inspires itself chiefly by a hatred for an enemy, rather than from this vision of possibility, it begins to defeat itself, dot, dot, dot. Its ideas of truth become more and more narrow. So I know that we don't typically talk about Harry Potter stuff in this section, but I've been thinking a lot about the ways that J.K. Rowling's transphobia has unraveled so much of the magic of the Harry Potter universe for me. Mm. Like in a way, I'm I'm actually genuinely surprised by how much of an effect 
her personal shitty politics have had on my ability to find pleasure and joy in reading the books. And I think that what Griffin is getting at here can help explain why Rowling's shitty personal politics have had such a a devastating impact on this universe that she created. Okay. We know that Rowling's quote-unquote liberatory world, this universe that was once an allegory of acceptance and belonging for queers everywhere, is informed by a hatred of difference, specifically transphobia. And because we know now that transphobia is at the heart of Rowling's Harry Potter world, the language and allusions in the text that we as readers might once have interpreted as unconsciously reproducing cis-centric norms. Mm. A really good example, my favorite example, being the fact that the stairs to the girls' dormitory in Gryffindor turn into a slide when Harry and Ron try to go up to see Hermione. Of course, because of the (laughs) magically stable category that is gender. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So these instances in light of Rowling's transphobia, reveal themselves, instead of being unconscious, they reveal themselves to be deliberate didactic policing of gender. Mm -hmm. And so then Rowling's hatred of difference, we can see that it's infiltrated her vision of possibility. And so in Griffin's words, the ideas of truth that were once available to us in the wizarding world, thus become more and more narrow. And so for readers, and especially queer and trans readers, what was once liberating becomes censoring or Mm. excluding. Yeah. Okay, two thoughts on that. One, I'm now picturing Susan Griffin as a giant talking Griffin. So that is already (laughs) really just bringing some Mm -hmm. sort of powerful magic back into this conversation for me. Mm Mm-hmm. But the other thing is what you're thinking through here, the sort of grappling with like, how does a hate-filled ideology destroy these visions of possibility is making me think about something I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is this question of what we think reading does. And Mm. it's a question I've spent a lot of time grappling with, particularly because like I wrote my whole dissertation about the idea of literary ethics Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to start off by arguing that, like, we can experience witnessing via texts and become more empathetic. And by Mm. the time I finished writing my dissertation, I was like, nope, I don't think that's true, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Actually not convinced that that's the case at all. And so I was sort of Mm. grappling with these ideas in the current version of the book that I'm working on. And my editor responded and she was like, why is it a book's job to make us better people? Isn't that our job? (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, you are onto something. And I think there's something there. I think that, you know, for those of us who are really bookish, those of us who love reading, those of us who have spent our lives thinking a lot about books and how much we love Mm -hmm. them, there's sometimes the sense that like books and reading are good, which one doesn't hold up historically, particularly. There are plenty of bad books. And there's plenty of very well-read people who suck. So I don't know how much of a correlation there is there. But two, also, it does have the sense of like outsourcing our ethics. Like, I think we see it when we see people Mm. responding to Black Lives Matter protests with reading lists. That's like, yes, education is great. Context is great. But sometimes there's this way that we're like, this seems really hard. So instead of dealing with this, I'm going to write down a list of books. 
as though the fact of the reading list itself sort of stands in. And what I've been thinking about is like, I still take so much joy in this project, even while I think I share with you a kind of loss of some of the simple joy these books used to Mm. give me. So I'm like, you know, where does that joy lie now? Where do those visions of possibility lie for me now? Mm -hmm. And they lie in exactly this, in the talking about it in the grappling with meaning, in the dialogues, you know, that we have with each other and then that we have with listeners and that listeners have with each other. Mm -hmm. Like, I might not have had that much fun rereading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, but I have had an amazing amount of fun looking at the, like, charts that listeners have produced to try to understand the (laughs) relationship between jocks and nerds and goths and preps (laughs) in the Harry Potter world. Like that collective grappling with meaning and the emancipatory visions of possibility that emerge out of those communities of interpretation, Mm -hmm. that is still really exciting to me. Like going back to that original quote, if a movement for liberation is inspired by hatred for an enemy more than visions of possibility, it begins to defeat itself. I wonder how much of that can also apply to like reading itself. If we go in reading for how much rolling sucks, <laughs> that's also like it's, a, it's an important piece of the reading. But I think there's something really interesting about the visions of possibility that emerge out of different kinds of readings and different kinds of communities of reading. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because similarly, like I haven't had that much fun rereading the books on their own, but I've had a a tremendous amount of fun coming up with, for example, charts and games (laughs) that we can then talk about as we unpack these like bigger issues and, you know, put them to work with this text. I'm really glad that we had this conversation, even though technically it's not the kinds of conversations that we normally have during the sorting chat. It's really reframed for me the ways in which this project is and remains really joyful and really important, even if my relationship to the books is suddenly much more complex and uh, difficult than it used to be. So thanks, Hannah. I appreciate that. I love finding joy in complexity. Oh, yes. Before we get too caught up in going off track and doing things differently than we normally do, we really need to sit down and do some revision and take a look at the topics that we've covered so far with Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Okay, so far, we've dipped our toes into three interrelated schools of thought focusing on marginalized viewpoints and experiences. So we've looked at feminist literary criticism, queer theory, and disability studies, which, as we've talked about, are all deeply and profoundly interrelated, both in terms of their histories as fields and in terms of the ongoing need to bring a meaningfully intersectional lens into our thinking. Yes, And we also talked about the gothic and how genre changes how we approach a story. Mm -hmm. Today, we're taking a deeper dive into an even more recent school of critical thought, one that builds on a lot of the ideas we've already talked about, you know, race and gender and media. These are all going to be really important parts of our conversation. We are going to be tackling celebrity studies 
And we might even get a little meta about it as we think about how, you know, celebrity is represented in the Chamber of Secrets, but also, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Rowling herself as a celebrity. I mean, we've kind of we've kind of already gone there a little bit, but I think there might be an angle there. (laughs) But before we get into the question of how meta we're going to make our conversation, let's start with something a little lighter. Marcel. Yes. Tell me. Mm hmm. What does it mean to be a celebrity in the wizarding world? Ooh. Oh, I love this question. Okay. Okay. I'm thinking wizard paparazzi. I'm thinking Mm. quick quotes quills. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking Mm -hmm. extremely smoky flashbulbs because for some reason, (laughs) for some reason, the wizarding world doesn't know how to take photos without there being big poofs of smoke. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. Okay. I think that Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets gives us some pretty decent insight into what it's like to be a celebrity in the wizarding world. Mm -hmm. Gawking certainly seems to be a major part of being a celebrity. People point and stare at Harry constantly in a way that like, I know that Anglo-Saxon Canadian culture comes out of a British context, but there's something about the idea of like pointing and staring at someone that feels very not Canadian to me. And I don't know how Brits feel about this. I have no idea. (laughs) I mean, I think our notions of civility as articulated by Daniel Coleman in his iconic text, white civility, (laughs) are extremely based on British norms of civility, which are classed and raced Mm -hmm. norms. And so I would guess that part of the subtext of like Colin Creevy's obsession with Harry is that it's supposed to be shockingly uncivil. I see. Okay. Okay. Right. Like Harry is so (laughs) distressed by it. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't be? (laughs) I mean, me, baby, take a million pictures of me. I look great. Actually, you know what? That says a lot about Lockhart's like really leaning hard into being a celebrity. Because like when you're a celebrity, what other option do you have? You can either be racked with discomfort all day, every day, as is Harry, bless him. Or you can be like Lockhart, bless him, who's just like, oh, Another photo, please. This is my good angle. (laughs) Okay, we are going to talk about this more because there's this great recent book on the idea of reluctant celebrity and what that tells us about how we think about celebrity and its relationship to race and gender in particular. Mm -hmm. But that's next segment. We can't talk about it yet. Okay, okay. What we can talk about is this question. There's lots of pointing. There's lots of staring. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means that Everybody in the wizarding world knows who Harry Potter is, knows who Gilderoy Lockhart is. That means that what we've got in the wizarding world is a remarkable experience of shared mass culture. Mm, Because mm -hmm. you don't have that kind of celebrity if you don't have shared mass culture. Yes, yes. We don't have really celebrity at all until we start having like radio and then TV, cheap popular magazines that can circulate really rapidly, obviously Mm -hmm. digital media now, right? The more sort of simultaneous and mass and shared our culture is, the more celebrities we get. I mean, we could talk about why that then means that like the sort of increasing silos Mm. of what we engage with has created 
these cultures of micro celebrity where it's like somebody who's super famous to me you have never heard of and I'm like oh my (laughs) god how do you not know this person like they're a huge deal on queer literary criticism twitter (laughs) and you're like I don't know who that is yeah 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 so like we're for sure going to come back to this issue when we talk about book four. But something that this is making me think about is the fact that Fleur Delacour, for example, she doesn't really know who Harry is. She calls him this little boy, which I think is (laughs) amazing because Harry is like, as you're saying, everybody in at least the British wizarding world knows who he is. They all know his name. He's famous. And then you just take like, one country over. (laughs) Just right there. It's right there. I mean, that suggests, okay, so we've got shared mass culture and that shared mass culture is national. Mm -hmm. Wizards in the UK know what's going on with wizards in the UK, but there seems to be like not even communication to France, let alone to like North America, where we later find out there's a bunch of other stuff happening. (laughs) And what is what is interesting in the context of celebrity, I think, is to think about this national mass culture and the sites through which it is shared, because to have mass culture, particularly like mass national culture, is really strongly associated with print culture. So like this is a um, Habermas's understanding of the public as being this entity that is formed through the shared consumption of print culture. And, you know, Habermas's whole deal is that the public often aligns with the emergence of nation states. And so this all aligns, right? It's national mass culture and it's a print mass culture, it seems, for the most part. And where we see signs of mass culture, we get radio later on in the series. But so far, what we've seen is... I think we've seen that there is a newspaper, Mm -hmm. but more significantly, we see that there appears to be a publishing industry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that publishing industry has bestseller lists. Mm -hmm. And Gilderoy Lockhart is at the top of those bestseller lists. So... Marcel, riddle me this. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How many copies of a book do you need to sell in the wizarding world of the UK to become a bestseller? This is a great question. And it takes me back to the publishing class that I took during my undergrad, where we learned about publishing Canadian literature. And we learned that a best-selling book of poetry in Canada sells 100 copies. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't super imagine that like the wizarding world would be all that much different. Can I can I intervene with some numbers? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. All right. So a best-selling book in Canada for the most part will sell a few thousand copies in a week. Poetry is a really different scale, but if we're talking about like mainstream popular fiction or popular nonfiction, we're talking about a few thousand copies. Mm-hmm. But we have to think about that's a bestseller in Canada. We have a population of 37.5 million. And the total population of wizards in the UK, 
I did a little bit of math and I did a little, mm-hmm. re- little bit of research to sort of back up what people in the fandom say. And the total population of wizards in the UK is approximately 3,000. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> probably once you have a book on the Hogwarts reading list, <laughs> you become a bestseller. My guess is that Gilderoy Lockhart is a best-selling author because he has like, what, five? Five books? on the Hogwarts reading list, you know? So like... A hundred percent. If he hadn't already been a bestseller, assigning his books would have been a surefire way to make them bestsellers. But he's a bestseller before that. Yeah. So like, did assigning his books double his sales? Triple (laughs) his sales? Quadruple his sales? Like, he could sell 10 copies of a book and he would be a bestseller. Yeah. It's a scale that uh, I can't quite wrap my head around. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, more realistically, I think then he's selling three books and becoming a bestseller because like there's a lineup at the bookstore, right? Like Mm -hmm. people are excited about him. So so what it suggests that mass culture in the wizarding world is significantly more mass. I see. Than it is in other places. Right, Right. Right. So like back to the everybody gathers around the water cooler to talk about last night's episode of Seinfeld kind of mass culture. Yeah, like what is in the 21st century, a pretty much unprecedented level of mass culture. We see he's doing a signing at Flourish and Blots, and there's a big lineup and it's crowded and the press is there. Oh, we know there's a press because the press is there. Right. How many bookstores do you think there are in the Wizarding World? Like in in the in the British, the British Wizarding. In the British Wizarding World, yeah. Uh, One. (laughs) (laughs) And here's why. If there were two, there would be one in Hogsmeade. But I don't think there is one in Hogsmeade, is there? I don't think so. I think there's only one, which is why there's a lineup, probably. Because like all 3,000 witches and wizards in the UK heard that Gilderoy Lockhart would be there. And so like the 30% of them or whatever who wanted his autograph showed up. Incredible. So we've got an unprecedented level of concentration Mm -hmm. of celebrity around a small number of people, a small number of possible books, a small number of available bookstores. (laughs) So in the muggle world, publishing is an industry of scale. Mm -hmm. And as an author, you get like a cut. I mean, you get an advance and then you earn out your advance or fail to earn out your advance based on getting a percentage of the book sales, and then you start earning royalties after you've earned out your advance. Okay. Either authors in the wizarding world get a much higher cut of the profits, or Lockhart is simultaneously the most famous author in the wizarding world and absolutely broke. Hmm. Because you can't make any money off a market that has 3,000 total people in it. Okay, all right. I'm willing to put my money on he's broke. And that's why he took the job at Hogwarts. Because, like, if he's a famous, worldly, best selling author, why is he working at Hogwarts? The students are not his fans. (laughs) This was exactly my question the first time I read this book. I was like, why would this super famous, successful author Mm -hmm. take, like, a bad teaching job? Mm hmm. And then when I started thinking about like, well, how is he getting money for these books? There are not enough people to buy them. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's also probably speculating. It sounds like it's also a combination. He probably gets a much higher cut and he's probably also broke. He's probably also broke. I mean, his robes budget alone, honestly. Truly. Truly. Yeah. And I mean, there aren't very many super wealthy authors in the muggle world. Like, there are some, (laughs) obviously, especially if you franchise your children's book series and make a ton of money doing that. But like, even if we think about Canadian literature, where like the pool of available known authors is much smaller, there's like five that I can probably name who I assume have a big fancy house and they're not like super rich. (laughs) They're not super rich. And for a lot of them, the best scenario they could get is that their successful books land them a professorship somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) So that is also kind of realistic. The high realism of Hogwarts. Who would have who would have seen it coming? (laughs) All right. I would like, now that we've established the deep weirdness Mm -hmm. of what celebrity culture might look like in the wizarding world, why don't we uh, why don't we learn a little bit more about celebrity studies? That sounds really good, Hannah. You know how all the 90s bands that we loved started touring again before the pandemic? Oh my god, yeah. I totally forgot about that, but yeah. Isn't it magical how something old can reappear and still be like totally old? Like absolutely nothing has changed about the music or how I feel about it? Anyway, let's talk about stuff that actually does change our hearts and minds in Transfiguration class. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Listen, I have a request. Okay. So I don't really know a whole lot about celebrity beyond like tabloids and gossip that I love to read. So could you start (laughs) us off with like a quick definition of celebrity itself? I absolutely can. So celebrity might feel like a contemporary phenomenon, like we associate it with tabloids, with Hollywood gossip, with movie stars, but... The idea of celebrity itself in the sense of a well-known, often discussed public figure dates at least back to the 15th century. The word. Mm. And it comes from the same root as the word celebrate. So a, a celebrated figure. Only more recently does celebrity take on the sense of someone who gets a lot of media attention. And that idea of celebrity as linked to mass media, right? So somebody who is featured a lot in mass media, and so we've all heard of them, is really pivotal to the field of celebrity studies as we're going to talk about it. Okay. So scholars disagree. That could be the beginning of literally any sentence in any (laughs) Transfiguration class segment. (laughs) Scholars disagree Mm -hmm. about when exactly we can 
date the beginning of celebrity as we currently understand it. Okay. That sense of sort of somebody who is who gets a lot of media attention. Mm -hmm. So some suggest it started in the 18th century with the emergence of the public sphere. That's that Habermas stuff we were talking about in the Mm -hmm. last segment. Other scholars suggest that it comes out of the 19th century with the romantics and their ideas of like individuality and selfhood and like Wordsworth and Byron were the first celebrities. Mm Mm-hmm. Or for other people, it really meaningfully starts in the 20th century with the birth of mass media via radio and then television. So it's tricky. It's tricky to historicize it. But we can agree that celebrity itself is much older than celebrity studies as a field. Okay. So celebrity, the idea of celebrity is old, but celebrity studies as a field is more recent? Like super recent. Okay. As in, we can really easily point back about a decade to the field's origin. A journal called Celebrity Studies was launched in 2010. A 2008 conference inspired that journal. Whoa. The conference was called Going Cheap, Female Celebrity in the Tabloid, Reality, and Scandal Genres. Ooh. (laughs) And that conference is a really interesting origin point because it gives us a sense right off the bat that celebrity studies being a field that emerged in the wake of feminist theory, queer theory, critical race theory, and disability studies, which we've all already talked about, is often engaged with those fields. So it's always thinking about gender and sexuality and race and class and disability and how those all inform our understanding of what celebrity is. Okay. Yeah. Probably if we want to really point at like an origin, like a first book where somebody was like, what if we talked about celebrity as a contemporary media phenomenon? We've got to point to Richard Dyer's 1979 book, Stars. Stars. And Dyer, by the way, super interesting figure. He was a queer scholar who also wrote one of the foundational books about whiteness studies. That's actually how I know of him. I did not know that he also wrote about stars. Stars was his first book. Incredible. So you can see how like the people who are forming the field of celebrity studies are like queer scholars, critical race scholars, people who are thinking about identity and how identity is mediated. Okay. I just want to make sure that I'm following. Is celebrity studies just the study of celebrity? Basically, yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it does. Great, great, great. You are exactly right. So in the introduction to the inaugural issue of Celebrity Studies, the editors, Sue Holmes and Sean Redman, describe the field broadly as investigating, and I quote, why and how celebrity is key to the way the social world organizes and commodifies its representations, discourses and ideologies, sensations, impressions, and fantasies, end quote. So you see, it's like using a lot of the tools that we've already talked about Mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about like discourse, ideology, representation, but, but looking at something different. And what's key here is that celebrity studies isn't looking at individuals as celebrities. Okay. I mean, people write books about Angelina Jolie, but it's not like (laughs) a history of her work. It's not biography. It's not biography. Celebrity studies is not biographies of celebrities. Okay. Instead, celebrity studies is looking at how celebrity is produced via representation. Sort of like how critical whiteness studies isn't like a history of white people. It's looking at the way whiteness is produced and the way that things that we think of as 
representational of whiteness are circulated in society. Okay, okay, okay. Yes. I'm with you. I'm with you. Do you remember when Lucia was on to talk about trauma and she talked about how like trauma is always already the representation of trauma mm -hmm. and that like the whole language we use to talk about what trauma even looks like comes out of this sort of like representational vocabulary, how we talk about like gaps, for example. Right. Celebrity is really similar in the sense that when we talk about celebrity, we are always talking about the representation of celebrity. We can't be like, here's celebrity and here's its representation because celebrity is its representation because celebrity is about mediation. Right. So if there was no such thing as representation, there could not be celebrity. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's a function of the way that media represents people. Okay. So, of course, with celebrity, we need to think not only about how celebrity in general and particular celebrity individuals are represented, but also the development of the media systems that lets those representations circulate. So we're not just looking at how they're represented. We're like, are they a function of mass culture? Are they a function of internet culture? You know, somebody who is like a mm -hmm. 1950s starlet isn't the same kind of celebrity as somebody who's an Instagram influencer. I getcha. Yeah. So we can't talk about celebrity without talking about how that celebrity is being circulated. Just like we couldn't talk about Lockhart as a celebrity without thinking about how his celebrity is circulating. So Lockhart cannot be the same kind of celebrity as, say, Harry Potter. Oh, no. Am I getting it wrong? <laughs> Lockhart <laughs> can be the same kind of celebrity as Harry in the books because they're both being circulated through the same system of mass culture in the Wizarding World. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But Lockhart's not the same kind of celebrity as Harry Potter the character because Harry Potter, the character, is circulated through like a complex multimedia empire. Okay, okay. So Lockhart can't be the same kind of celebrity as Daniel Radcliffe. Precisely. And he also can't be the same kind of celebrity as the character Harry Potter played by Daniel Radcliffe from the Harry Potter franchise. Yeah. So... When we are thinking about celebrity in these books, we need to think about it on two levels. We have to think, how does celebrity operate in the wizarding world? Mm -hmm. And then we also have to think, how does this novel, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, as its own form of widely circulated mass culture, represent celebrity itself? This is a very meta topic. And there are so many concepts and ideas that I am wrapping my head around right now. I wonder, could you boil down some keywords for me? I find sometimes keywords really help me to like think about the bigger ideas. So could you give me a handful of key ideas that I can look at going forward? Yes, absolutely. This is a big field. So let's narrow it way down. Let's narrow it down to one book that has some like key concepts in it that I think are going to be helpful for us. Love that. These ideas come from a book by your friend and mine, Lorraine York. Oh. Delightful Canadian scholar. This is her most recent book, which is called Reluctant Celebrity, Affect and Privilege in Contemporary Stardom. 
So I'm pointing to this book in particular, both because it does a great job of thinking intersectionally about celebrity in general, and because I think the idea of reluctant celebrity is particularly relevant to Harry himself, whose moral standing in this novel is really closely linked to his resistance to celebrity. Gotcha. All right. That makes sense. Okay. So let me give you a couple of juicy tidbits out of reluctant celebrity. Right from the get-go, York makes a couple of really key points about celebrity being both gendered and raced. So she writes, you know, in the introduction of this book, quote, the gendering of celebrity is pervasive and fundamental. So it's always, always gendered. She continues, there is in the very concept of celebrity of being a visible public subject, an assumed passivity that tends to be gendered female, Hmm. a being at the mercy of other social agents of production and consumption who interpolate the celebrity into the public sphere. One is sometimes literally pursued. Reluctant celebrity she continues, can operate as a desired reinstatement of a masculinity that is threatened by a public sphere that in recent incarnations, not only reality television, but especially social media, is seen as devalued, debased, and feminized, end quote. Wow. So this basically just describes Lockhart v. Harry in the book. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. 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 She's not right. She's writing about like contemporary white male celebrity figures and their sort of performance of resistance. Like she, she is not surprisingly enough talking about Lockhart versus (laughs) Harry and their relationship to celebrity. And yet, so she then also goes on to talk about how raced celebrity is as well. So she quotes Mm -hmm. this British sociologist, Ellis Cashmore, who talks about the intersections of race and celebrity, particularly how black celebrities have avoided conversations about race, quote, this is Cashmore's words, as if subdued by the overpowering demands of behaving with good grace so as not to incite controversy or resentment, end quote. And then York continues, Cashmore's chilling phrase, behaving with good grace, discloses a factor that powerfully militates against celebrities of color expressing mixed feelings over their status, never mind issuing explicit political calls to action. She continues, Mm -hmm. in theorizing reluctant celebrity, then I maintain awareness that the power to display one's reluctance is one that is, at the very least, a gendered and raced privilege, end quote. Whoa. Like, I had never thought about celebrity in this way before. Like, I've thought about celebrities critically and, like, who we listen to and who we don't listen to. But, like, thinking about it as, like, a whole system and a whole structure of whose voice is valued and whose is devalued and the ways that they, like, have to behave in order to move from one to the other. Incredible. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's such an interesting field. And the last point that I want to make is that York, like a lot of other celebrity studies scholars, is really resistant to the idea that like celebrity itself is inherently either liberatory or politically resistant or non-liberatory or politically complicit. You know, celebrity isn't necessarily any one thing. It can be used in a lot of ways. Like we see examples of people using their celebrity really powerfully to do quite radical things like 
Jane Fonda is the first name that came into my head. <laughs> but also, you know, like John Boyega at Black Lives Matter right. protests yeah. saying out loud, I might never work again mm-hmm. as a result of this. Yeah. Right. But embodying exactly this point that York is making, that black celebrities are not allowed to speak out about race lest they be punished. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you know, he's aware of the standing that he has and he's like, I'm going to use it. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So the final point from York I'm going to give us is this. She writes, there are affective performances. Those are sort of emotional performances that are commonly expected of the public person. And so a departure from those expectations marks something of a disruption, though that disruption may issue from a position of privilege, end quote. So she's talking about how Generally, the expectation is that celebrities should be into their celebrity, that celebrities should be grateful, that they should like it. We're giving them all of this attention and all of this money. The least they could do is be goddamn delighted to take a selfie with us. And so the performance of reluctant celebrity, right, of somebody critiquing the paparazzi, resisting mainstream media, that is a disruptive relationship to celebrity. It resists the expectation of celebrity. Her point is that just because it's disruptive doesn't mean that it's not also a sign of a kind of like normative privilege. Okay. So if I'm understanding right, what she's saying is that in order to even be able to have that reluctance, you most likely still come from a place of privilege. So like if we think about someone like Robert Pattinson, for example, not as Cedric Diggory, but as Edward from Twilight, his disdain for that entire movie series in which he was a star is part of what like endears him to the public in a way that, let's say, to go back to John Boyega, if John Boyega were to walk around making fun of Star Wars and making fun of Star Wars fans, it would be unacceptable. <laughs> People would riot. And so if I'm understanding right, like the ability to show that kind of reluctance towards even your own fandom is a privilege of, shall I say, white masculinity? <laughs> oh, you shall. I shall. Yes. So the examples she's using in the book are John Cusack, Robert De Niro and Daniel Craig. And so she's like, it's not a coincidence that reluctant celebrity is often associated with straight white cis men. That is who can constantly publicly push their celebrity away and not have it cost them opportunities. In fact, that reluctance leads to them being even more respected. So back to that point about like, You are more respected for critique. You are more respected for resistance when you are a white man is the argument that Lorraine York is presenting to us. And I think this this offers us some really interesting ways of thinking about how the book sets up Lockhart as this like bad celebrity and Harry as a Mm -hmm. good celebrity and what that's telling us about like the right and proper relationship to celebrity. Hannah, you've got me. I'm convinced. Let's unpack these ideas in the next section and put this knowledge to work. 
All right. We've just had a crash course on a brand new subject, celebrity studies. So now, just like my recurring nightmare, let's unpack all of that knowledge immediately because the exam is right now and it's time to take your owls. <laughs> I love giving I love giving you an exam that I've absolutely not allowed you to study for. <laughs> Where do you want to start, Hannah? What should we tackle? Let's start with that first encounter between Lockhart and Harry, because we get a lot of dynamics happening right from the get-go, mm -hmm. right? We've got an immediate sort of presentation of what archetypal celebrity looks like in the wizarding world. We've established it's mass celebrity. So we are not talking about some, you know, niche online celebrity who's <laughs> famous to you, but not famous to me. We're talking about somebody who is famous to everyone in the wizarding world. In fact, that was established for us in advance by the fact that Mrs. Weasley has one of his books at home and is excited to see him signing, right? So this is, you know, an established, recognized celebrity. Yes. And what's the first thing he does when he sees Harry? He pulls him in for a photo and says, together we'll make the front page. Yeah. 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 So his immediate instinct when he sees a child <laughs> is to exploit him. <laughs> like, yeah. Instantaneously. Yeah. And that, that tells us a bunch of things about what celebrity means from the get-go. Like it's morally corrupt, it's exploitative, it values attention over substance, it right. is constantly hungry for more, it is never satisfied with a current level of success, right? All of these things that make celebrity rapacious, but also dangerous, that's right. Yeah. Because Lockhart's endless desire for more celebrity is precisely what leads him at the very end to put Harry and Ron in peril and to leave Ginny to die. Right? Absolutely. Like that is the sort of the logic of the book is that like, if you start off interested in celebrity for celebrity's sake, you will end up murdering children. It's just a slippery slope. Yeah. From front page to child death. You know how we feel about slippery slopes. They're slippery and bad. They're so slippery. Famously, it's right there in the name. So as a sort of comparison, let's think about Harry's relationship to Colin Creevy, who's like our little mini paparazzo. Colin and we'll learn later his brother Dennis, like they both come to Hogwarts, but are they muggle born? He is, yeah. Okay, okay. So Colin who is a muggle-born, has, I would say, similar to Hermione, learned so much about the wizarding world in his excitement. He's so excited about Harry. So excited so, about Harry. He, he learned that he was a wizard like two days ago. He's like, <laughs> but you're famous. <laughs> you're so famous. You're the youngest seeker on the Gryffindor Quidditch team in a century or something like that. Like he has an astounding amount of knowledge about Harry. And Harry is just like, get away from me, Colin. <laughs> so he's like the polar opposite to Lockhart. A hundred percent. And there's two really key things I'd like to pull out of what you just said. One is the fact that Harry is immediately and instinctively resistant to celebrity. Mm -hmm. And so is Ron. 
Like Ron also does not like Lockhart from the get go is, you know, is not into Colin Creevy finds him annoying. (laughs) So I think that's worth unpacking. Like, why do our heroes hate celebrity? But also I want to when you were talking about Colin Creevy, I was like, oh, there's something really interesting there about how celebrity functions for fans. So like. Here's this little kid who has just found out that he's a wizard and he's about to go to this school where he doesn't know anybody and he doesn't know anything about this world. So he does some like initial reading and he finds out, oh, there's another kid who's just a year older than me, also didn't grow up knowing he was a wizard and he's a hero. And he like saved the world and like was the youngest ever Gryffindor seeker. And he like latches on to Harry as somebody who like gives him a point of connection to this world that's like really scary and overwhelming. This is breaking my heart. I've never thought about it like this before and it's absolutely devastating. And Harry is a big jerk for not embracing his celebrity and giving Colin a hug. I mean, I don't think like the book doesn't treat Colin well. He's treated as an irritant. Yeah. He is also like it's made clear to us that he is like really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the reason he doesn't die is the fact that he sees the basilisk through the camera. Mm -hmm. So like in Colin, I think we can really read some like latent possibility of a version of celebrity that is like emotionally meaningful Mm -hmm. and like a genuine resource to people who are struggling or feeling isolated. Which I could be wrong, but feels to me much more in kind with the kind of celebrity that we're seeing sort of develop out of social media platforms and stuff. Like people really bond with perfect strangers just because how they talk about the world or their lives or their experiences like really resonates with us and kind of gives us a feeling of being seen or our experiences being legible to this other person who that person's great. And if they're taking antidepressants, then maybe I'm okay because I'm also taking antidepressants or something. Truly, truly. Harry is like the Chrissy Teigen of Hogwarts, (laughs) just like a super relatable celebrity. love that. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think, you know, what we see in Harry's automatic resistance is that his issue isn't so much Colin wanting to take a picture of him or like Lockhart knowing who he is. It's that he doesn't want to be seen to be somebody who wants to be a celebrity. So it's not the being famous Mm -hmm. that is a problem. It's the participation in the spectacle that is the problem. And that is policed from the get-go. Because every time Harry looks like he might be even remotely willing to participate in this culture, Draco Malfoy makes fun of him until he stops. That's right. Yeah. And even like just sitting in the classroom and immediately Snape is like, oh, look, it's our new celebrity. And it's like, I just, he just sat down. Oh my God. I'm just just going to school. Can I not catch a break? (laughs) 
Yeah. And this is this is also interesting, too, because what he's famous for is also like the death of his parents. And oh, yeah, it is also entirely reasonable, I think, to feel not good about being famous for the death of your parents. Like, I, I can see that being something that one would struggle with. Yeah. So there's something interesting there, another parallel in terms of unearned celebrity and Harry's relationship to it versus Lockhart's relationship to it. Mm. Because Lockhart's celebrity is unearned and empty. Mm-hmm. And it's like he's all the more enthusiastic about the trappings of celebrity precisely because it is unearned. Mm. Whereas Harry is constantly pushing away any attempts to, you know, be praised for things he thinks he doesn't deserve to be praised for. And that reluctance or resistance is what positions him in the book as a hero. So this is complicated. It sounds like celebrity is neither good nor evil. It is just (laughs) another system of organizing the world. (laughs) 100%. A system of organizing the world that because it is so concentrated, right? There's so much hyper attention on celebrities and on their representation. It's like, a really concentrated way of seeing how things like race and gender are being handled. We've talked about this in previous episodes. Lockhart as a celebrity is being actively feminized. He's a sort of legible as a queer character and his sort of femininity slash queerness are linked to his celebrity in a way that suggests that participation in celebrity is emasculating. Mm -hmm. But Harry is also famous. So it's not being famous that's emasculating. It's like being too excited about being famous. So like it is it is really complex. And one maybe interesting way to think about this complexity is to think about rolling herself as an author having been shot into celebrity status via the unprecedented success of the first Harry Potter novel. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Now, I don't know the exact timeline of when Rowling was writing Chamber of Secrets, but what I'm interested in at least sort of thinking in the direction of is how as a whole, the series is like pretty suspicious of media and spectacle and yet are themselves deeply media and spectacle. Mm-hmm. And what I'm sort of like dragging this conversation, kicking and screaming towards a point <laughs> that I've been thinking a lot about in the last year or two. All right. And that is the kind of cultural status we give celebrity literary authors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because celebrated authors, particularly celebrated literary authors, authors whose books are treated as being in some way themselves morally improving, those authors are very frequently treated as being moral authorities. Okay. 
Look at Margaret Atwood and how she is allowed. Peggy is allowed to have an opinion about every goddamn thing. That's right. At this point, because she's written a lot of smart books that people liked a lot. Right. And so as a result of that, she gets to be a public feminist and have the like final say about feminist issues. I'm putting all of this in big scare quotes, by the way. Yeah. And the success of her books become a shorthand for the validity of her opinions. Right. And I think we see something dangerously similar happening with Rowling right now, Mm -hmm. where the fact that she wrote an extremely successful series of books means that she has unprecedented access to public platforms, unprecedented access to her opinions being broadcast everywhere, and a sort of default right to opine about any fucking thing, no matter how obviously incorrect and ignorant she might be. Okay. So the things that the books have done well, for example, stuff that we like really picked up on in the original run of our podcast before JK Rowling became a public turf were things like celebrating difference and a resistance to authoritarianism, a resistance to fascism. So like those things, because they were so successfully packaged towards young people, but also to people of all ages, because the books became beloved by people of all ages, those successes thus gave Rowling a platform irrespective of the validity or the downright violence of the things that she's saying. I see where you're going, Hannah. So there's this weird thing where like, okay, where else can we find an example of a celebrity author who uses the fact that they've written a bunch of best-selling books as an excuse to get access to like opinions and power that they don't necessarily deserve and then use that power to endanger the lives of children. (laughs) Rowling's a total fucking Lockhart is what I'm saying. Wow. Wow. That's what I'm saying. You brought it full (laughs) circle. My mind is blown. (laughs) Wow. It's just, it's the more I was thinking about, you know, what this book has to say about celebrity, the more I was like, Joanne, you have become that which you most detested. (laughs) Which is a reading that itself is in tension with any attempt to like redeem Lockhart as a character. You know, if we're trying to read this and be resistant to the implication that celebrity is like bad or feminizing or contentless, then then my point immediately begins to crumble around me (laughs) like the ruins of an old castle. You know, we talked about ideology at the very beginning. And the thing about ideology is that it tends to be dogmatic. It tends to be like a thing is either true or it is false. But by contrast, theory is the ability and the capacity to sit with questions and to sit with uncertainty. And so I think, Hannah, that uh, under no circumstance does your point crumble like an old castle wall. (laughs) I think we just have to sit with complexity. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a reason why I like celebrity studies as a field. I think it, it invites a renewed complexity 
particularly looking at characters like Lockhart and Colin Creevy that are in some sense kind of one dimensional. But I think that we can sort of pull some some richness out of them. I agree. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 11 of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or ohwitchplease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch, Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we will shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel hilariously mispronounce your username. Marcel, one of the reviews in this outro, I'm going to read it to you. The title is Simply Perfection, and the content is, that's it. That's all to say about it. Now read my name, Marcel. (laughs) So people are just using the reviews to troll you at this point. Incredible. Well, give the people what they want is what I say. Thanks to Frau V, Learning Leader, Ray Swizzle, or also possibly Ray's Wizzle, who's to say, Ada underscore Av. Mm, oh boy. This is the person who wrote the review that I just read to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maria Sarkyar? Maria Sarkyar? Okay. Sometimes E. And Anita Fajita 15. Oh, wow. Love that last one so much. Okay. If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets with a conversation about print culture. Ooh. But until then. Later, witches. Witches.